Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6. Today we conclude our four-part series on Christianity 101. And if you were paying attention to the opening hymn and to the call to worship, you could probably guess that it's about resurrection. Listen to Paul's words to us. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I need to borrow your imagination pre-COVID. You're on a business trip with a colleague, and you're on your way down to breakfast to meet with a potential client. And your coworker says, so what's with the Christian faith? What does that mean to you? See, last night over dinner, he told you how he had grown up in India and about the Hindu faith and blew your mind. I mean, it was like visiting another planet. What you knew about Hinduism was the sacredness of cows, and that was it. And now he's asking, so what about the Christian faith? And let me be clear, you're not staying in the Grand Hyatt. You don't have 38 floors in the elevator to come up with an answer. You're staying in the Hampton Inn. It's four flights, and the numbers keep clicking. You see where I'm going with this, right? We're, we're concluding this series on Christianity 101. Four parts, elevator speech. You get one floor for each thing. And as two gives way to lobby, my mind races. Thankfully, we're going to do a, a Monday night series of classes later this fall on the topic, and we can explore it longer. But as lobby starts to appear above... I think, well, there has to be something said about the Christ. I mean, it's in the name of the tradition, Christianity. And if you're going to say something about the life of Jesus, there's so many things, but it just seems to me it would be really hard to skip the part about, you know, the way the Roman Empire killed him on a cross. And, oh, by the way, footnote, God raised him from the dead. I, I don't know how you leave that out. And so for me, resurrection is one of the four central tenets of the Christian faith. And I mean that whether you interpret that metaphorically or literally. When the gospel writers got around to telling the Christ story, every one of them placed resurrection as the climactic moment. Well, of course. How could you, how could you top that? But here's the thing. About 20 years before the very first gospel was published, Paul was already writing about it. 
what the Gospels narrate in story, Paul reflects on in pastoral letters. He doesn't describe it. He doesn't tell the story of how the women went. It was early in the morning, the tomb, rolled the stone was broke. No, no, none of that. Instead, Paul focuses on the meaning of resurrection. In one of his other letters, not Romans, he says it's about hope in this life and in the next. And I find comfort in that at every funeral. But in Romans chapter 6, what Paul wants to say about resurrection leads him to talking about baptism. Doesn't that seem like an odd thing to talk about baptism? Do you remember your baptism? If you've been baptized, do you remember your baptism? I have been baptized three times. It's a long story. The first time was 15 days old in the Roman Catholic Church of my childhood. I don't remember that one. But when I came to faith as a freshman in college, two different churches insisted I be baptized, and so I was, and they gave me instructions, which included, among other things, wear swim trunks, bring a change of clothes, a towel, and a blow dryer, because I used to have hair. But nobody said anything about resurrection. Nobody said, oh, and we're going to kill you, and then we'll raise you from the dead. Not a word. You've heard me quote before the theologian Will Willimon, who said that when you join the Rotary Club, they give you a handshake and a lapel pin. But when you join the church, we throw you in water and half drown you. And he's right. We half drown you, right? I mean, you have probably hadn't thought about it, but going down to the water symbolizes this being buried. And if we held you down long enough, you'd be dead. But we don't do that, just to be clear. Instead, we, we, we pick you back up. And that, Paul says, is symbolic of coming back to life. That's why I love this story I read a few weeks back about a small Central American village where the priest doesn't just baptize infants with sprinkling, which would be the tradition and say the same old words priests say everywhere. Instead, he insists on dunking them in water. And he says, as he takes them under, he says, I kill you in the name of Christ and I raise you, I resurrect you in the name of the risen Christ. Now, that'll get you in trouble with social services, but you get the idea. That's why in the early centuries of Christianity, a lot of baptismal pools and fonts were shaped like coffins and tombs. When I read Romans chapter 6 and think about Paul's understanding of the resurrection, two things stand out. One is God's vindication of Jesus, and the other is our participation. The one isn't really on the page, it's behind it, it's the backstory, the context. The other one is there, and it's somewhat plain to see, but not really. So let's start with the backstory. When Jesus shows up in the first century, his life is the antithesis of the Roman Empire. It, it is polar opposite. Jesus starts his ministry with thousands on a hillside, and he says, blessed are the meek and the peacemakers, not Rome's soldiers clad in armor, the war machine. It's a very different take. It's, it's the polar opposite. When the emperor issues a decree that they tax 
bread and fish, Jesus gives it away by the thousands for free. And the elite in Rome have no use for the sick and the lame, and Jesus heals them, and every corpse he comes in contact with comes back to life. Well, Rome can only put up with that for so long. I mean, they got to put a stop to this. And so they do what empires everywhere do. They, they put to death the troublemakers. I mean, think about the Christian pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, executed by the Nazis in that camp. Think about Martin Luther King on the balcony there in Memphis, shot dead. See, empires don't have to pull the trigger. They can just kind of look away. We should have seen this all along, this backstory. It was there all along in the name of this document, Romans. They live in Rome. You could substitute Moscow, Beijing, D.C., wherever it is. But here's the punchline. God raises him from the dead. Rome says, no, 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 we can't do that. No, no, put him to death. God says, I vindicate what he did. I approve of what he did. And he brings him back to life. But the second thing is that for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just about him. It's about us. It's extended to us. And it happens in baptism. It's it's water, I know. It's the same water that you put in hot tubs and water balloons. But for Paul, it's very symbolic. When, When I came to faith as a freshman in college, my life had been totally about cars, and girls, and drugs, and drinking. And then it was turned around. I had new priorities in my life. That's resurrection. See, if your life used to be about the bar scene, and now it's about feeding the poor, that is the resurrection of Jesus extended into your life. If you used to put all of your eggs into the basket of climbing the ladder of success, And now you're worried about all these people being evicted. That's the resurrection of Jesus in your life. But here's the thing. Paul's readers and us still live in the empire. We still live there with all of the usual temptations. But this is where you could misunderstand his point. He does not say that, you know, we might be tempted to keep on sinning and commit sins in the plural, he uses the singular, and you could capitalize it. Shall we continue in sin is like saying, shall we continue to live here this way? Here's what I mean. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, offers this analogy. He says, imagine a bilingual couple from the UK who's living in Paris. They moved there a few years back. One of them got a job. But now they're debating. Should we stay? Should we go back home? And so they ask themselves, well, shall we continue in France? Shall we remain in France? You see, if you you remain in France, they're going to speak French. But if you go back home, they're going to speak English. That's what Paul is saying. Shall we remain in the Roman Empire? Or shall we speak a different language? Shall we have a new orientation? Well, you kind of live in both. And that's the rub. In the first century, if you said Jesus is Lord, wow, that could get you in trouble because Caesar is Lord. 21st century, ah, it's not a problem. When I was in seminary in Fort Worth, 
I remember this church. I don't remember which one. Big church because they had enough money that they rented all the billboards around town. Well, not all of them, but you know what I mean. And a bunch of those signs on the bus bench. And everywhere you went, it said, say it aloud, Jesus is Lord over this city. And I had a lot of thoughts back then, and I still do. But the one that stands out now is, who cares? I mean, do you think the empire's threatened by that? Caesar would have been in the first century, but if, if Jesus is Lord of Kansas City, should the mayor be clearing out his office? I mean, is, is Jesus going to run city council? You, you still have to pay tickets. You can't say, well, yeah, but Jesus, I, I know Jesus. Can I, can I get a pass? You, we, live, we live in this place, and what Paul is in essence saying is we have two passports. But which one will be home? Which one will be the defining allegiance of your life? How will you live? See, the thing about empires, they can do all kinds of damage. In some ways, they can just sort of ignore you because they're big and systems and you're just a person. Like, you, you, you've tried calling these companies where they have so many telephone prompts that by the time you just finally give up, you say, forget it. It's like, well, try calling the White House tomorrow and ask to speak to the president. It's not going to happen. It's big. But sometimes they don't just ignore you. They roll over you. Little ways, little deaths. You know, like if your skin's a certain color, you get in the back of the bus. Or how women and persons of color get paid less for the same job. That wears on a person over time. But no, make no mistake, empires kill. They kill. You know it was not that long ago in this country that we had public lynchings. When a black boy who crossed the line, needed to be taught a lesson, could be strung up by a rope on a tree, and people turned out to celebrate how law and order had been restored. They sold refreshments and picture postcards so you could mark the occasion. And the empire just kind of looked away. I think the poet Emily Dickinson said it best. This world is not conclusion. Empires kill, but God's response is resurrection. God gets the last word. And that's something like what I would tell my friend from India. And it's pretty much what I have to tell myself every day watching the news. What do you believe? 